Welcome to the Take Podcast, where we seek the news that isn't considered popular or relevant enough in today's media landscape, and some things that are. World news and topics from all continents, yes, even Antarctica, ranging from environmental, culture, politics, history, and economics. With that being said, enjoy, and please feel free to reach out and keep this an interactive experience. Welcome back to the Take Podcast with your host, Sean D. James. In today's episode, we're going to focus on national women and international profits. We're going to dive straight into it and kick things off with seaweed farming. From Malaysia to Tanzania, Fiji, Scotland, and the world leader, Indonesia, seaweed is a top quality product with a projected market value of $30.2 billion by the year 2025. I gotta say, the only time I think of seaweed is uh, sushi. <laughs> that that, that would usually is the mindset. You think seaweed... Alright, somebody's eating sushi. After that, then you'll go, eh, uh, the ocean? Floating green slimy stuff? Hmm. That's a commodity? Like, I mean, I know you go to certain places, sushi has a... Some places could be like little restaurants, a little high price. But it's like, uh, $30.2 billion. Within the next three years, it'll hit that mark. I mean, once again, it's rounded down. $30 billion market. That's quite stunning figures right there. But today, I'll be taking a look at one country in particular, and that's Kenya, or the south coast village of Kiabuni to be exact. 20 years ago, research began on the potential for the commercialization of seaweed farming by the Kenyan Marine and Fisheries Research Institute, which will be referred to as the Institute for the remainder of this talk. I mean, unless you want to constantly hear me say the Kenyan Marine and Fisheries Research Institute over and over, I think we're just going to settle with the Institute. While researching for prime locations to work with, there were three chosen, Kiabuni being one of them. After 10 years of research, it was finally time for the local residents to be introduced to the seaweed farming pilot program. Now you have to keep in mind that the year 2012 meant nothing to this small village when it came to traditional norms. Traditionally, in Kenyan's coastal communities, the men are the one who fish. The women, they take care of the family and if needed, they farm. So when Fatuma Muhammad, chairwoman of the Seaweed Farmers of Kiabuni and mother of five, chose to take part in the pilot program, there was some pushback from the men of the village, as women not only don't work in the sea, but they don't swim either. Now, I can see how that would play into effect. Maybe no, you know, they go to the coastal line with the kids, you know, a little something in the water. But to actually go out into the water itself, it's just one of those things of traditional norms. The sea belongs to the men. Land, women, you tend to that. And when we get back, then we take charge of that. So I could see how she, you know, had to deal with some pushback in the beginning, let alone how to institute probably had a hard time just convincing people alone of the benefits of, hey, work as a community and not just, hey, guys, we need you to stop fishing and come, you know, do some farming at sea. Mohammed said the men were invited to join, but refused. It wasn't until the men saw that it was the women who 
who were paying the cost for their children's education that the men start to come around to the idea of seaweed farming. I can imagine it was difficult for them, though. I mean, it's a generational thing. It's not just, it's, it's cultural and generational. Because all you know is, as a man, provide for the family, you go into those waters. Let's get this fishing done. Let's do this. Let's do that. So when you have, I would say, they, for me, I would believe they were viewed as maybe a, a figure piece of the government coming to tell you, hey, this is another way to provide for your family. And here you are, a coastal village, not even a part of the city life. And they're trying to disrupt your way of providing, your way of livelihood. I can see why the men had said no. But it's easy to see why the women said yes. Because for them, this was an opportunity to have another means of providing for the family. At any time, something can go wrong. The man in the house is gone. Well, if there's nobody stepping into the picture or stepping up to the picture, she has to provide. And with the current weather conditions around the world right now, with these droughts to floods, I can see why the women of the village easily said, oh yeah, we're willing to learn. By 2014, they were farming seaweed for profits and for majority workforce of women, 200 of them, compared to the 50 men, they started to show other villages the benefits the program could provide for one's community. Ever since, the Institute has been a guiding factor in Kiabuni's economic growth. Women like Tina Saeed, another farmer from the community of Kiabuni, can earn a minimum of $100 per harvest which equates to 11,741 Kenyan shillings. This is still below the national average income of 15,120, which is an increase this year from the previous four years of stagnant rate of 13,572. That means the old national average was $115.59. With a $13.30 increase, your national average is now $128.89. I mean, there's a lot of people here in the U.S. that would gladly say, hey, a $13.30 increase in national average you can throw me a quarter of that on my hourly check and I will be happy. <laughs> I mean, a person will be like, hey, look, you give me a tenth of that on my check as a pay increase. I'm going to go. Oh, yeah, sure. Overtime. Oh, oh we're going to have another increase next year, too. Oh, no problem. I will gladly be in. <laughs> I mean, you got people that right now, they're feeling the, the effects of. The gas with the inflation. And I mean, increases like that after being stagnant for so long. So things of beauty. This has led to not only the better education for the kids, but also housing. Going to bricks. Roofing material and sand from grass, thatch, and mud walls is a drastic improvement in the quality of life for this village. Now, I I swear, I misread it when I first saw it, and it said grass. I thought it said glass. I was like, what the hell is glass? I said, okay, Google, what is glass thatch? It was like, grass thatch. I'm like, grass. I'm like, Oh, grass. Okay. You're, you were building homes out of that? 
Oh, that layer of the... Wow. Okay. This is how people were living. Let that mud wall dry. Get it nice and wet. Dry. Build. Dry. Build. Harden up on one another. Boom. I assume the grass thatch was used for a form, you know, a form of installation. And most likely that was a part of the roofing material itself. But to think, now you are going to brick? No, that's a little, that's a little more solid than the mud walls. You're not actually putting sand down. Have a nice little visual effect here. And now you're actually putting in roofing materials. So when that rain come through, you know there's no leaks coming up in there. Hmm. Now that, that, that uh, that's an improvement right there. I mean, what more can you say? The downside of this growth has also been on the economic side. Due to the ban on plastic bags, it has been difficult to obtain proper packaging for the products they've made from seaweed, such as soaps and shampoos. The Tanzanian company that they sell to has yet to increase their buying price from the current valuation of 25 case. Kies, which I believe is how it's probably pronounced, Kies, equates to 23 cents per kilo. So, per kilo, this Tanzanian company is paying me 23 cents. Um, yeah, I'm not going to lie. When I, when I saw it say per kilo, instantly my mind went streets. And I was like, okay, what is the value of a kilo of cocaine? What is the value of a kilo of marijuana? I need key, I need street drug values. I don't care what market we're talking. I need street drug value in kilos here because, damn, 23 cents per kilo of seaweed. And the company has not increased their buying power. So not only are they selling the seaweed to this company, they're now struggling to have packaging for the excess seaweed that they have turned into products. Like soaps and shampoos, gels, drinks, anything they make the seaweed in, they have to also make sure they have the proper packaging. 23 cents, my guy. If I come in and say, hey, they're paying you 23 cents, I'll pay you 50 cents. And they start doing business with me. Is a Tanzanian company then going to say, who the hell is this American interfering with our business? Am I going to become a middleman? And now because... I know the value. They're going to turn around and go back to the people and say, hey, look, how much he's paying you? He's paying us 50 cents. We're going from 23 to 50 to 50. Like, uh, we, what? Like, he just ups the rate. He, he basically, he basically doubled. He, he doubled what we're getting. What are you guys going to do? We give you 51. Just come back to us. We'll lock it in. We'll give you 51 for the next two years. And then we can renegotiate. I'll step aside. I mean, they got a better source of living. I'll step aside for a deal like that. And then I'll be the asshole to come back in two years. Right before that contract ends and goes, hey guys, as soon as the day ends, the time it ends, y'all sign a contract with me. I'll get you a dollar. That's, that's four times that pay. So, $100 per harvest. Hmm. A harvest can happen four to five times a year. We get these per kilos. 
you're pulling 4,000 less than national average, but now I'm paying you four times the rate. I mean, hmm, you're about to have three and a half times the national average in a coastal village. Sounds like a coastal village might upgrade to a uh, gated community. With the right financial backing, of course. But I digress. The government itself is moving at a pace that is hindering what could be a potential boom to its economy and environment. The most recent obstacle has been the development of a new industrial fishing port. Yes, an industrial fishing port. A few kilometers away in Shiamoni. In December of 2020, site testing had begun, and it affected the farmers, as well as the village of Emori, who lost their entire crop, resulting in them giving up on the project, as they see no way of stopping the development of the fishing port. In nearby Wasini Island, Amina Sabel, who runs tourist guest houses, stated, a full-fledged industrial harbor here at Wasini will completely destroy the ecosystem. There are close to 50 animal species, including some that are endangered. I'll repeat that again. There are close to 50 animal species, including some that are already endangered. But, I mean, hey, it's a fishing port. It's industrial level. It's only 50 animals. Until those animals go away, ecosystems devastated, and now your industrial fishing port isn't looking too industrial when it comes to those profits on what it's bringing in. As a result, Ms. Sabelle has started an online petition against the construction of the port. You can find a link in the show notes for those of you who are interested. According to Ms. Mohammed, the villages were not informed, nor were they consulted on the effects of the construction. Yet it is them who have to deal with the effects it will cause to not only the ocean and its wildlife, but to their livelihoods. Now, I remember when I was still living in East Orange. And for the listeners who are in Jersey, you you see the construction that goes on along the parkways and everything. And I remember during the pandemic how they was always on it, even before, before pandemic time, before the shutdowns. City Hall would be on Facebook and, you know, his updates was going on with the city, new mayors, everything's going to be covered. This construction is going to last this long. This is not going to happen. If you look at things on a local level, like with the politicians and everything, leave, leave the whole, oh, Democrats this, Republicans this. Leave all that stuff alone for a moment from the national level. State level, bring it down to the local level, to county and city or town, depending on where you live. The communication is always key. I remember thinking, like, oh man, they said that construction is going to be until 2024. They plan on doing this construction for three years, and you're hearing the road being dug up and a new exit ramp and this and that. I'm like, wow. But at least. You're being informed. <laughs> At least you're being consulted with about this. Voice your opinion, whether in person or virtually via the town hall meetings. And this is where I feel for these type of communities and countries that lack infrastructure and simply are just I'm going to say thrown to the wayside. It really gets me. You have an 
an industry that's projected to hit 30 plus billion dollars in the next three years. And here they are making 23 cents per kilo of a product that if this weekend I'm like, hey, but you want to get some sushi? Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me get a California roll. Hey, let me try. Let me let me get the uh, let me try that monkey roll. I've been looking. I just never got that. Let me get that. Let me get a shrimp tempura. Um, hmm. You know what? Yeah, I think I'm gonna want that hibachi. I'm gonna get the hibachi with. Hey, can I get the hibachi chicken? Yeah, with with, uh, with scallops. On the side. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Order your totals. A hundred and thirty some dollars. Oh, uh, yeah, cool, cool, cool. We got enough food for tonight. We'll have some extra tomorrow. We'll chill tomorrow. Oh, they come in? They come in by? They come hang out tomorrow? Oh, uh, yeah, so then most definitely. Yeah, we got plenty of food. We good. We covered. I just said I'm going to spend something on a night and leftovers for tomorrow. And here is this woman, Tina. It's making 100 per harvest. What I'm spending and go... If it's delivered, here's a $10 tip. She would look at me and go, that's, that's building supplies. That might be tuition for new books and a uniform for the year. Maybe even two, depending on where you're at in the world. For a kid. Random food for thought. But listeners, let me know what you think. Next, we're going to kick it off with the world of sports and women's soccer and rugby. While doing research, I came across an article on NPR that stated the U.S. Soccer Federation reached a deal ending the all-too-common pay gap between women and men. I must say uh, it's about time... It seriously blows my mind with um, in sports, just how little women's coverage gets, and you always have the you you hear the arguments, and I feel it's, it really comes back to that all too common. Oh well, the women's they know it's just not entertaining enough, or they don't they don't do enough, and this and that. Well. When it comes to soccer, though, it's like women's was more popular than men's. During the time of World War II, when you had everything going down and men was drafted into war and they was doing what they were doing, and women were in factories and then they start playing, you literally had the women's teams actually doing better after war times. Where people came back and they wanted to get back and go see the game. Go down to the stadiums, you know. Oh, I miss the normal, the normalness of everything. But I've become so accustomed to the women playing. It's, it's just like, wow, I don't want to see men no more. And then you had the reconstruction of things. And the women's sports ended up getting a little less funding. A little more or less and more or less. To now, you have such a wide pay gap, it almost becomes one of the situations of you're playing for the love of the sport. Yes, you're being provided. You can live off what you make with the sport. But let's not play the fool here. There clearly is an enormous pay difference here. That stretches across all industries. Not just some or, you know, there's a few there, a few there. Well, multiple, no, all industries. When it comes to that pay gap. So to hear that the women's national team is finally getting paid the equal pay. I was I was at work like, wow. That that brightened my my boring night. With equal pay for all competitions, 
ticket revenue, appearance fees, and being the first federation with equal World Cup prize money, it seems this could become the national example of what the good folks over at Lewis FC is doing domestically in England. In the case of Lewis FC, they're the first team to actually pay the men and women equally. Now, I understand the women's team plays professionally and the men's team plays in the lower leagues in England. I believe that is tier seven within that structure. So, switch it to American term, a, a division seven. At the end of the day, it's still non-league. Move their way up to semi-pro. They can become a professional team. The ethos is equality. Only time will tell if they can maintain the course and keep moving in a more progressive and equal manner when it comes to the sport. Once I have finished the article, I scroll down to see even more great news. The U.S. is named a Rugby World Cup host. This will be our first time hosting for both men's and women's. Being labeled the Golden Decade, the Rugby World Cup 2023 takes place in France in nine venues. This will be the 10th edition of said tournament. Kicking off September 8th with France versus New Zealand's All Blacks. And concluding on October 28th with the finals. As it stands, Chile and the U.S. have yet to qualify, but will play each other two times. July 9th with Chile as the home team and July 16th with the U.S. as the home team in Glendale, Colorado. You know what team I'm rooting for here. Next, 2025, England will play host to the Women's World Cup. We then move over to the land down under, where Australia will play host for both men's and women's in 27 and 29. And then we come back here to the U.S. for the 31 and 33 men's and women's. In an effort to raise more awareness to the women's game, Effective 2025, the tournament format will expand from 12 to 16 teams, while the men's will remain at 20. Just like the U.S. women's national soccer team, the U.S. women's rugby team is who truly represents us on a global stage. With one World Cup win, being at the first Women's World Cup in 1991, and two back-to-back runners-up finishes after their cup win compared to the men's team whose best record to date is a 1-3 a 1-3 which equates to fourth place out of five places in a group pool you have five teams competing to say who's the best in this group we finish fourth yeah Equal pay. Third place is technically the best the U.S. has ever done. And that was for the U.S. men's soccer team in 1930. So once again, third place in 1930 for the U.S. men's soccer team. 1991, women's team. First World Cup win. 1991 Women's Rugby Team. First World Cup win. Hmm. 91 was a mighty goddamn good year. But then you have the U.S. Women's Soccer Team followed up with 95, third place. 99, champions again. 03, third place. 07, third place. 2011, second place. 
2019 champions. Hmm. I mean, four World Cups, one second place, three third places. It's pretty goddamn good. Women's rugby, a World Cup, two second places. That's pretty goddamn good. Men's team. Continentally wise, you know, continental. North America, South America, you stay in your region there. Yeah, you, you bring in awards. But when it's time to go on the big stage, hit that global status, falter. Falter and just, yeah, can't handle the big time, apparently. Eventually, we'll get there. I see promise with it. Just not yet. Funny thing is, that's just talking about the rugby 15s, not the rugby 7s, which is completely different. Whose World Cup actually takes place in South Africa this year. With three appearances in the World Cup, their first in 2009, they finished third, two out of those three appearances. 2009 and 2013. Two back-to-back bronze medals, and you qualify for the 2022 World Cup in South Africa. Yeah. Once again, looking pretty good. So I ask, what is truly the big issue with equal pay here when all the accolades are coming from one side and not the other. Let's just say that's a food for thought. Forty five million people viewed the last women's rugby world cup, which was held in Ireland. In 2017. Whereas when it came to the men's. And I was one of them. 857.28 million people viewed. Yeah. That was a 26% increase. From the 2015 tournament. The first Asian nation to host had 1.7 million people in attendance for that tournament. This was when Japan also had the Olympics on its event schedule. That was a busy time coming up, pre-pandemic. Now with viewership numbers like that, all I'm saying is, where's some pay increases at? Show me the money. Last time I had this discussion with my brother, when comparing rugby to American football, that pay difference was drastic. I mean, you had, what was it? he said, the, you had squad players. You have a guy who's second, third string on a team, even a squad player. Who's pulling more than people who start on a national team? Yeah, we get that money right for both the men and women. Let alone, let's get this equal pay up there. Seriously. Instead of food for thought, let's have, let's chamber it as nutrition for thought. going to end this off with two companies with extreme international pull. One who's based in Paris, France, and another in London, England. Those two companies will be LVMH or 
Others might recognize when I say Hennessy, Moet, and Louis Vuitton, and Diageo. Now, you might not have heard Diageo, but as we go along with this, you'll recognize some of the brands they own. As they are the second largest distiller in the world since 2017 after being overtaken by a Chinese company. But uh, let's, let's, let's go back to LVMH. Now, it truly gets me how people got them stimulus checks and when they had the opportunity, they would be at lines. I mean, lines. To go buy shit when you still couldn't go out in the club. You couldn't go. Like, places were still shut down, but people was like, nah, I gotta go buy this. I gotta buy this. I gotta buy that. It's like, yo, you're at the Louis store. You over here getting Gucci this. Fendi that. I gotta get the guy. It's like, where the fuck is you going with it? Like, realistically, you're you're getting it, so you about to be online just, just posting you got it. I, I get it. You want to make a fashion statement. Let's just acknowledge one thing here. Fashion never really goes out of style. Just out of season. So when you're sitting here, like, oh, I'm going to wear this, I'm going to wear that. There's other people who are looking at you like, that's not even in season anymore. That's, that's, this is winter. Why are you rocking something from last year's fall collection? Like, what are, what are you doing? Like, that was last year's fall. They brought it, it was so popular. I remember they brought it back in the springtime. Oh, you're one of the stimulus people. Who spent their stimulus check on that bag During a time when Those luxury goods Were well overpriced I mean you have people spending Three to four thousand dollars On bags that originally would have cost them What maybe two Maybe even less Fifteen hundred pre-pandemic I mean these companies pretty much Had some excellent growth now when it came to LVMH they're low when everything happened the markets went down you could have got one share at $63.21 or Maybe you didn't. $63.21. Now, had you have bought a share, no, just one stock, you would have rolled that high to $171.91. Yeah, yeah. Let alone you would have been seeing a dividend of a dollar and forty-seven cents for every share you own, and this company pays semi-annually, so twice a year, so two dollars and ninety-four cents. Now, unless you have a certain brokerage. You wouldn't have had access to them. Like for everybody that hopped on Robinhood, you don't have access to that. It it does not pop up for you. Diageo pops up, but it's not supported by them. So these two companies, you would have had to have something like Ally, Fidelity, Charles Schwab, just to get access to the stock itself. Because the price I'm quoting it's actually considered an OTC, an over-the-counter price. Which is 
tied or pegged to the actual stock. So when I say the low is $63.21, that's because you're getting it for a fifth of the price. Had you bought the actual 100% whole stock, if you had access to the European markets, you would have paid $320 per share. Now, what that sounds like a damn, that's a big difference from $63. Shit. Well, your high went from $171.91 to $862.46. Yeah. Dividend, you're still getting around the same for dividend. You're still going to be good with the semi-annual payment. So when that bag, that belt, them shirt, shoes go out of season and the value drops, you'll still be making income off the, the stock itself. You still would have made some good money. Just saying. Now, when it comes to brands that's owned by this company, once again, we know Hennessy. Me, I'm not not a fan of uh, not a fan of Henny. I've had to say, it's okay. I'm not really a fan of like dark liquor like that. Correction, cognac. Love my whiskey. Love my whiskey, especially that moonshine. But. Hennessy, Belvedere Vodka, Moet. Then let's say, well, you know, I want some jewelry. Oh, watches? Oh, we got Bulgari. And we got Hublot. Now, honestly, when I saw it, I was like, is that Hublot? What the fuck is a Hublot? It's like, no, it's like, no, it's Hub. I'm like, Hublot? No, it's Hublot. And as soon as I said, I'm like, Hublot. Alright. That 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 name had me dying because it made me think back to a UK rapper, <laughs> Professor Green. And he was like, is it Hublot? Is it Hublot? Who the fuck knows? It's a watch. It's expensive. They're going to buy it to say, I got it. Then we move over to the beauty, the beauty line here. Mark Jacobs, Fenty Beauty by Rihanna, which is sold at a retailer that they own, Sephora, to the clothing lines, Christian Dior, Fendi, Stella McCartney, J.W. Anderson. When you have your hands in this many industries, you can see why their stock price was so high. I mean, hell, Rihanna made the right call when she said, oh, yeah, I'll sell my company for 50%. I'm keeping 50% ownership. This is what helped push her net worth to being $1.7 billion, making her the second richest black entertainer after Oprah. So... If something was to happen and Oprah dies by the time you hear this, well, Rihanna's now number one. Let alone she's also, with that, becomes the richest woman. Correction. Different task bracket there. Wealthiest woman from Barbados. Hmm. Sound like good business deals there she made. I mean, you move in the right circles. You align yourself with the right people. You'll see what, what to do. It's not just what Jay-Z does. It's also what she has aspirations for and everything like that. I've never been a fan of Rihanna. Music or anything like that. Like I acknowledge her, but not somebody's like, oh man, I love her music. and I just never listen. But business-wise, oh, magnificent. Keeps, I mean, we you had the drama with the Chris Brown stuff, but if you ex, if you exclude that and look at her, even her personal life with her love interest, you go, hmm. You had the Chris Brown stuff. You and Drake were on and off. You and Chris Brown try to get back for a second, didn't work. 
And now you with ASAP Rocky. Just had your first child. And you two are perfectly happy together now. Congratulations. I mean, in between not messing with Drake anymore, cutting that off, and before getting with Rocky, she was with a guy I never even heard of. By the name of Hassan Jamil. My man is the heir to a, an Arab company that is a link to Toyota's. <laughs> Between Toyota's movement in the Middle East. Just look him up. Like, my man smooth turned around and was like, all right, boom, I'm, I'm here. I'm Arab. I went to school in Japan. Went to university in London. I'm fluent in three different languages. I have this legacy company I'm running. I'm pretty good. And his choice in women. It's like, oh. He had women that had some influence in industries, clearly. But then, here it is. We move over to Diageo. On the low. $152. On the high, $223.14. And at the current rate where it's sitting, last I checked, $174.12. Now, you can say, well, it's down from the high. Well, yeah, same thing with, with the Louis. Current rate, once again, last time I checked, $114.03. That's if you have the OTC stock. Which is one fifth, or you'll be looking at five seventy twenty one. You're still up from your original entry points, and with Diageo, same setup, semi annual payment, dollar fifty two, three oh four for the year. Now, being strictly alcohol. These guys have names you know and stuff I enjoy. From Crown Royal to Don Julio, Kettle One and Smirnoff. Side note, Kettle One's botanical line. Whoo, that mint cucumber? It is learning alcoholic version of what they give you at Cheesecake Factory. Just go to Cheesecake Factory and say, hey, do you have the cucumber mint drink? Like as a refresher? They go, oh, yeah, we have that. Yeah, we have the valve. We can make it. Yeah. Now, try that. And then just think, damn, this with vodka. Hmm. You'll enjoy it. Trust me. Unless you have a thing about mint. Then you're missing out. You're lost. Bear brands like Guinness and Tusker. Back to the hard stuff with Johnny Walker and Aviation Gin. I've never been a uh, gin person. But I must say Aviation is one I can I can drink. The bottle design. Like I'm one of people like if the bottle, if I've never heard of it before, I don't know the brand. But that bottle design looks good. I'm willing to try it. If the artwork on the beer or wine, if that shit is stellar, I'm I'm like fuck it, I'm gonna try it. That 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 artwork looks good. Yeah, I'm gonna give it a shot. <laughs> now the thing that makes Diageo so interesting is that they own thirty four percent of Moet Hennessy drinks division. So when LVMH goes up, particularly the MH portion, Diageo gets something extra in their in their pockets. There, they got a little cushion there for themselves. It's these type of things that makes you truly appreciate the game of Monopoly. It's like. 
it's one of those situations where you go, oh, like, what kind of games you play? Life. Life? That board game? No, I mean life. We're both in that game right now. We're, we're playing it. Everybody had an introduction when it was Monopoly. Own property. Build it up. Get money. That was your introduction to real estate. Oh, psh. Gotta pay that income tax. Oh, almost made it past Park Place and Boardwalk. Mm. Here's that luxury tax. Well, the stimulus was, here's a bank error. Collect $1,500. And the luxury tax was called Louis Vuitton. Coach, Gucci, Fendi, Rolex, Magic City. <laughs> I mean, shit, people was tricking off that money in them strip clubs. Don't don't even lie about that one. If it wasn't you, I'm sure you know somebody or you've seen the videos. I am not a financial advisor. This isn't advice. Merely suggestions of what I would have done. How to pay attention. And things that I regret not doing. Do your own research. Look into things. And... Truly see what pulls you in to make legitimate, real money. That's not me talking shit about crypto. Just be careful what you invest in. Because when people talk about, oh, they got rug pulled with crypto and I put money in, this is going. The same thing happens with real estate. You do deals with people, somebody might have done something wrong on the back end. You try to do business with somebody, something wrong on the back end. Do your research into people. Into companies. With that being said, we're going to end it here. And as always, enjoy yourself, enjoy the day, and stay prosperous. Peace.